Everyone got their Bibles open to 1 Peter 3.8? We will uh, stand up and read the Word of God. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we come to you today, we ask you to continue to hear our prayers as we move on from what we prayed for earlier. And we ultimately come here to, to grow in our knowledge of you. But not that it just ends at knowledge, Lord, that it would move into our, into our lives in practical application. There's no point in just being hearers of the word. We need to be doers of the word as well. And so we ask you to meet us where we're at. Uh, in all these virtues that you mentioned, some of us will be at different understandings and different growth and maturity in these characteristics based on how long we've been Christians or maybe our past influences in terms of how we were raised as children and all these things. But we, we ask that uh, wherever we're at, you, you raise us to a new level of understanding and maturity and that we can live out these virtues in our own families, in our work relationships, and in our marriages and in our church life so that we have unity wherever we go. So we uh, look forward to our time together and uh, may we have a time of uh, learning and also a time of maybe laughter and a time of, uh, of growth together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin the sermon today by asking you a question. If someone were to come up to you and ask you what you thought was required in order to live a fulfilling and good life, what would your answer be? What, or what kind of things would you include on your list that you would thought would bring you contentment? Would it include material things, like a nice home, Nice car, trendy clothes, you know, things like that? Or would it center around things that bring you comfort? Would it things like great food or good music, uh, recreation and sports, and memorable vacations? <laughs> or would, would it require your health to be in perfect order? Or would it just come down to a simple answer? That you just want a life that's trouble-free, has no hardships and no trials. Well, today's message will provide an answer to this question, as what does it require from God's perspective to live a good life, to be content and have a fulfilling, uh, fulfilling days ahead? So let's begin by looking in verse 8. Because in verse 8, Peter begins by saying, to sum up, to sum up. What Peter was summing up was really some conclusionary thoughts 
to a short section of teaching that began in chapter 2, verse 11, and ended in chapter 3, verse 7. If you remember, this all had to do with Peter's concern for us as believers in terms of how we lived out our lives in three important social structures of society. It was in our relationships with the government, our relationships to work, and our relationships in marriage. And if you remember, the key virtue, of course, in all of these relationships was that of submission. Our willingness to submit ourselves to those in authority over us. Well, beginning in verse 8, Peter introduces, introduces us to six more virtues and attributes that he desires all followers of Christ to exhibit in their lives. Now, attitudes, if, ado if adopted, result in a promise from God that one will experience a good and fulfilling life and one of blessing. Very interesting. So let's look at these traits and see what, he looks, what he's looking for from us in order for us to live a good, fulfilling, blessed life. The first thing is we are to be harmonious. Now some of your translations may have unity in there, unity of mind. Others might have uh, like-minded in your translation. All of these are good translations because the Greek word really means to think the same. To think the same or to have the same thoughts and the same attitudes. Now within the church, this will definitely include doctrinal beliefs, right? As we seek to be unified in our understanding of truth. But the word, I believe, encompasses more than just that. You see, when someone seeks to be harmonious or wants to live in harmony, it actually has to do more with how they relate to one another and how we interact with one another. I mean, even in music, right? Those of you who are musical, if you're in harmony, it's about how your one note relates to another note. And all of us know what it's like to stand beside people who are tone deaf and sing terribly. We wish they would stop because we recognize that they're disharmonious or disharmonial, however the word is. <laughs> I'm not a scholar of the English language, clearly. But you get the point. It's, it's, not, it's off tune. It's off kilter. So harmony in music, we know what it takes. One note has to relate well to another. There has to be peace between these two notes. And it's the same with what God wants from us in terms of our character and how we relate to one another. Now this doesn't mean that we have to agree on absolutely everything. But there's a desire within us as people not to allow petty things to create division. Let me say that again. It's important that as people, as Christians, we don't, we don't allow petty things to create division amongst us. We're not to be people who are known for stirring up conflict. We're not to be the ones in the midst of disputes. We're not to be the ones always in dissension and causing it. We're not to create divisions. We're actually to be pursuers of peace. So the question then is, how are you and I doing in this area? How are we doing? How is it going at work? Are we known as the nitpickers? Are we always the one that seems to always be in the middle of disputes at work? How about in marriage? Are we constantly fighting and have contentious and dissensions amongst our families? Are we hardly ever the ones to be the pursuers of reconciliation as we wait for someone else to do it first? Do we always expect others to initiate to be the pursuers of peace and not us? How about even in the life of Genesis House? Life at Genesis House, are we peace seekers or are we more people that like to cause up conflict and, and, and let disputes and dissensions continue on for long periods of time? Peter would tell us that we're to be harmonious, we're to be like-minded in the way we approach others in terms of being pursuers of peace. The next word is sympathetic. 
This comes from the Greek word compassionate. Now it literally means to feel with, to feel with, and includes the idea of suffering with someone else. Now when you put this together then the application is obvious. We are to be people who are sensitive to the needs of others. We, are, we have to be willing to be people who come alongside each other to experience our joys, to celebrate successes and achievements, but also share in sorrow. We need to be sensitive to people when they hurt, and we need to hurt where they hurt, and we need to experience loss for them when they feel loss. But in order for us to arrive at this state, it means that we need to be freed from other emotions that actually cripple us in this area. Some other emotions actually stop us from being sensitive. It, things like envy, when we're envious of other people, or when we're jealous, or we have this deep spirit of comparison between us and other people. Another huge one is unforgiveness. When there's unforgiveness, we are completely unsympathetic to the hurts and losses of other people. In fact, we're almost glad when they get hurt and they experience loss, as opposed to being to feeling with them in terms of the their hurts that they're going through. But as Christians, we need to change our attitudes in the way we're sympathetic. We need to feel with other people and, and be hurting with them when they hurt, but also celebrate them when they experience joy. And it reminds me of Paul in Romans 12. In verse 15, he says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. So church, how are we doing in our area of sympathet being sympathetic towards one another and other people in this world? Do you hurt with others? Or are you more glad that they're hurting? Do you notice when people are experiencing loss and try to reach out to them and hurt with them? Do you celebrate with your joys and their successes, or do you get more jealous and envious that it didn't happen to you? We are to be sympathetic as Christian brothers and sisters. Brotherly is the next virtue. Some translations will have love for one another. Others may have love of the brethren. Now that's very different in terms of its application. If you have love for one another, that's those inside and outside the church. But if it's love of the brethren, then that's definitely love within the church. So the application is de varies depending on how you translate it. But the word in Greek really is to have strong affections for those close to you. So I think we can solve this by just saying it simply that the New Testament is clear that when it comes to loving our brothers and sisters, our first priority always has to be those within the church. The New Testament is crystal clear. I can give you passages if you want in dialogue. It's crystal clear that our first priority are those within the church. It's important that we don't forget our own people. But I don't think it's too far stretched to say that it, could, that it needs to extend into the world as well. Starts in the church and moves out to the people in the world. And the way we love, according to what Peter is asking of us, is ultimately demonstrated through self-sacrifice. Love in the Bible is always defined as self-sacrifice. Love in the world is all about emotions and feelings. Right? 
But biblical love is to be self-sacrificial. And the key marker that separates biblical love from others' love is expectation of return. It's always the expectation of return. The question is, how are we doing then, church? Amongst each other, within a community of believers and in the world. Are we loving self-sacrificially? And are we loving without expectation of return? And here's how you'll know if you have an expectation. If you start to punish that other person with, say, silent treatment or with other kind of manipulative, manipulative tactics to make them know that they failed to recognize the way you love them. Or if you remove them from your life in terms of friendship or relationship. That's an indicator that there was an expectation there and you didn't actually love them the way Christ wanted you to love them. But Christ went to the cross while we were sinners, while we were enemies, and while we were ungodly. Romans 5, 8 and 9. There was no expectation of return from His part. And I know how hard this is as a Christian. I experience this weekly in my own life. But to move towards Christ-like love for the brothers and sisters in this church, then we have to have no expectations. We love just because Christ loved us that way. The fourth word is kind-hearted. And the Greek word actually is tender-hearted. It means tender. And the root of this word is very interesting. I, I learned something this week I didn't know. The, this, the, the word tender, or the root of this word, is a reference to one's bowels or intestines. <laughs> okay? The, the deep internal organs of one's body. Now with this in mind, now you get to see the depth of tenderness and kindness Peter's just talking about. It's an affection or emotion for people that comes from the very core, deep insides of one's well-being. So it's like a visceral, like, sort of like deep affection for people. And it entails these tremendously powerful feelings because it comes deep from within your gut. These would encompass emotions like compassion and pity and so on and so forth. So again, when you think of being tender-hearted, think of it as being like the, these deep internal organs just like crying out for like this tenderness of this deep affection for people. Again, how are you and I doing in this deep, tender care for one another? Now, for those of you who are parents, I want you to take your children off the equation when I ask you this question. Your children don't count in this. They're off the table. When it comes to being tender-hearted and caring this way, do you care about others from the very depth of your being as if it hits you in the gut? Do you have a love for your brothers and sisters in this church and other people as if it hits you in the depth of your gut. Or when trouble hits them, are you just glad it's not you? Thank goodness that didn't happen to me, so on and so forth. One of my most favorite scriptures in, in the whole Bible is in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, because the Apostle Paul knew what it was to love and to be tender-hearted in this way. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives a huge list of all the afflictions he's faced in life. He's, he's been beaten. He, he lists them all. It's, just, it's a tremendous hardship list of going hungry, having no clothing, being beaten in certain types of ways, in different certain manners, always having his life in danger. And then he makes this comment, the very last sentence of his afflictions. He says this, And besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? 
Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? See, I wonder if Paul did that intentionally. I, think he, I wonder if he put that last. In other words, these are all my physical hardships of being in ministry, but, let me, but he put it as an emotional hardship at the very end. And I wonder for him if this was the hardest of all. A beating ends. It, it, you get beaten, the pain lasts for maybe you know, three, four weeks, depending on what it is, maybe longer, but then you can kind of get over it. The daily concern for relationships and your love for people, that's a daily thing. And Paul's like, I, who, can be, who can be weak in the church? Who can be work, weak in Corinth? Who can be struggling in Thessalonica? Who can struggle in Galatia without me feeling it? And who goes astray and walks off from the faith and gets into sin without me not being enraged by this? This is a guy who's tender-hearted. We need to, as Christians, well, Peter tells us, listen, church, you need to function with this attitude towards one another. We're to also be humble in spirit in verse 8. Some translations will have the word humble-minded, but really the word means humility. We, are to be hum- we, need, we need to be humble hu- uh, people who are known for humility. Now, don't, don't confuse false humility with real humi- humility. What do I mean by false humility? This is the person that goes around basically that has this attitude, well, I'm like, you know, I suck and I'm just a bad person and if people knew what I was really like, I wouldn't be, you know, this and that and the other. That's often a guilt trip manipulation tactic to try to get people to feel sorry for you. That's not humility, that's actually pride. (laughs) When you take that attitude towards life, like the victim mentality, that's actually a pride thing because you're wanting people to come and say, you're okay, and they think you're humble, but you're not. Real humility is opposite. Real humility is when you see other people as being more important than yourselves. That's true humility. You can write this in your Bible. Second, or second, sorry, second. You can write Philippians 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. Listen to the mark of humility according to Paul. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you up to the interests of others. True humility is not to have like a, I'm a bad individual type mentality to try to gain people's favor it's actually the opposite is to see other people as more important than yourself and not be self-focused it's all about them it's not all about you and when you do this this is what this is what peter is asking from us and again how how are you and i then doing in these areas do you and i typically see ourselves as having to have our own needs met first or are those secondary? Are our needs secondary in order to meet the needs of others? I'll share something with you in my own life that was very profound. <clears throat> Happened about seven years ago, give or take. Maybe eight years ago. I was going through a stage in my life where I was in a sort of downward, sort of down in my faith and down in the dumps a little bit. And uh, I remember not wanting to go to church fairly regularly. I just wanted to stay home. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see anybody. And I don't know if it was, it was a pattern that was going on in my life. I'd still go, but I mean, I, I might have missed once or twice. I can't remember, but I would still go. But it was very, I was always in a bad place with that. And I don't know if it was the Lord telling me this or if I just came to this in my own conclusion, but 
I remember thinking this. Andrew, your problem is, is that when you have that attitude towards the Christian community, all you're caring about is yourself. Because what you're thinking about is, I don't want to go there because I don't want to... It's all about me and my needs and my wants. And it's like God was saying to me, what if other people need to hear something from you that day that they're going through, but because you're not there, you're not the person to encourage them? <laughs> the, the body of Christ doesn't work with all the spiritual gifts being present. What, Andrew, if you have spiritual gifts that are given to you that other people don't have, that if you don't show up, the church body won't function as well as if you don't show up? See the incredible conviction I had? It stopped me from my attitude. I mean, I still had the attitude sometimes that could go through my mind that I still didn't want to go. But it was a really good learning curve for me. Because I was making it all about my needs and my interests and like the church doesn't need me. When in fact, I do have spiritual gifts and I did regularly have conversations with people which furthered them on in their faith. So in a very subtle way, which was very profound for me as well, I was actually doing the opposite of what Peter was doing because of I wasn't fulfilling Philippians 2.3. It wasn't about humility for me. It was actually about pride. Finally, we are in verse 9, not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. What does this really mean? We're not to be retaliatory. We're not to be retaliatory. We're not to be retaliatory in what we do, in our actions, not returning for evil for evil, and in what we say, not returning insult for insult. So Peter's instruction is very clear. No matter how unfairly you think you've been treated, or how unjust someone has been to you, you are not to retaliate. And John MacArthur in his commentary uh, said this really well. He said, as believers, there needs to be in us an abstinence for revenge. Isn't that a good word? An abstinence for revenge. That needs to be part of our fabric as believers. And interesting enough, Peter has just provided Jesus as the example of this in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, verse 21. He just gave how he suffered unjustly and didn't retaliate. And he goes on in verse 18 of chapter 3, which we'll see next week to also talk about Jesus in the same manner. Now I know this is hard, but this is what we're called to do. Man, I got uh, pushed in this area of life on summer vacation. Um, I'm in Ontario and I'm there on holidays. I'm at a lake resort and it's about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening and everyone's there on holidays and we are sitting around this uh, I guess it'd be like a, like a pub kind of slash grill kind of place. And there's a deck overlooking the, the, uh, one of the lakes of Ontario. And uh, the, the kids are like, you know, on their own. And there's a bunch of kids there. There's our boys and a bunch of other kids there. There must have been about 12 of them all playing together. And all the adults were upstairs in this deck and all the kids were down, down below on the beach. Well, uh, everything's going well. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I hear a click, 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 click. And what it was, was all the, the you know how people have like uh, swimming pools and hotels along pools have those recliner chairs? Like they're more like beds that have like an elevated back. It was our boys, along with the other kids, pushing all the backs off like from the chairs, like pushing them down. 
and they were just having a game, there's about 30 chairs in a row, and they're going bang, 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 and knocking them all off. And it wasn't like anything mean or mean-spirited, but it was, they were just doing it in fun. And they weren't breaking anything, and, it was, and the kids were laughing and having a great time. And this, fam, this man, about the equivalent of, say, me from, like, say, Eric away, yells over, the, yells over the deck, Hey, you guys! And he gives our kids, like, crap. And everything in my body just started to rev. Like, you, I mean, I just came unglued in the inside. I was literally ready to go over there and physically, like, basically say, how dare you ever speak to my kids like that ever again. It was everything in my flesh just to control myself. And uh, there were other kids there too. That's partly why I was a little bit calmer, just because it wasn't just my boys. And they weren't doing anything malicious. And two scriptures kept coming to my mind. Andrew, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And number two, if you correct a scoffer, you'll get a mitful of insults back. And I thought, and everything in my flesh is going, I want to basically take this guy to the cleaners. And the scriptures would not leave me alone. You're going to be at peace with all men. And you have to, if you correct a scoffer, this is not going to go well for you. And you're likely going to cause a scene in front of all of these kids. And I bit my tongue and never said a single word. <laughs> the rest of the evening was a write-off for me because I was emotionally rattled and I was very frustrated as being a Christian in that moment because it was at that time I wished I wasn't. But I had to obey the scriptures and not retaliate. And the reality was, is, um, the kids, I mean, were they, doing, were they sinning? No. Should they have been doing that? Well, that's argumentative. But from his point of view, they were disrupting his holiday because they were making a noise and he was there paying whatever, three, four hundred bucks a night for this vacation. So again, it's uh, returning insult for insult and evil for evil. It's exactly what I want to do. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we're not to be doing that. So the question is, how are we doing? How are we doing in the church? If someone insults you or something happens, you want to get you're going to get back at them. Are you going to overlook their wrong? Someone hurts you, you're going to get back at them, or can you overlook their wrong? This is especially important in marriage, friends. It's especially important in marriage. If you return evil for evil and insult for insult, it doesn't ever go well for us. It never does. Interestingly enough, though, Peter doesn't just leave us with this thought. Not only are we not to be retaliatory, we're to give a blessing instead. You pick that up in verse 9? But giving a blessing instead. What does Peter mean by that? Are we to go around when someone assaults us and put their hand on their shoulder and go, bless you, brother? Right? Or the girl lips you off and you walk up to him as a fellow girlfriend and you go, oh, I just... Uh, want to bless you right now for saying that to me. Is that what he means? Well, it's not what he means. The word for blessing actually is the same word that we get eulogy from. So when someone stands up at a funeral and gives a eulogy, that's the same word. So that gives you a clue what the word means then. It means to speak well of someone or to offer praise to someone. So to bless then is to pronounce something special over someone's life. And I'm going to suggest two ways in which we can do this, and one 
as a, as a possibility. <laughs> two for sure ways and one is a possibility. There is, the reason I say two for sure is I can support it from Scripture. The other one is just my thoughts. First one, we can pray for them. We can pray for them. Matthew 5.44 But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, I'm not saying at the moment you just say, I know you just insulted me, can I pray for you now, brother? I don't think he's saying that. But what I'm saying is, I mean, like, you could. You could say, hey, I know what you're saying here is like pretty hurtful, but is there anything I can pray, pray for you in your life? I mean, you could do that, I guess. But I think what he means more is just you do this in your private life. You may, you may not say anything, but you walk away and then you spend the night praying for them as opposed to looking how to get justice back or justice served. Another way besides prayer is to speak well of them. In Luke 1.42, when Mary came to see Elizabeth after they were both pregnant, uh, when, when Mary approached Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby leapt in her womb. And when, she, and when she said to Mary the following, she said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And then she goes on to say some more things. But what we have here is the context of blessing is Mary, Elizabeth speaking well of Mary. So again, in con- what we can do, again, with insult for insult, that is to not speak well of people. We might, instead of speaking poorly about them, we can actually speak well of them if we can look for things that we can look in their character that are worth uh, uh, stating of value. And thirdly, this is my suggestion, but it may, we could give thanks for them. Look for something that we think, uh, look for some way to express gratitude for some way that we, we, who we know who they are or any like, attributes that we're grateful for. So again, we can pray for people, we can speak well of them, and we can give thanks for them. Now, I recognize that the definition of blessing here primarily involves speech, but I want to suggest that it probably encompasses more than that. And if you want to fight me on this in the dialogue, I'm, that's okay. But uh, I think blessing actually has also to do with how we treat someone. It can be also given through action. This is when we choose to do something good for someone so that we make their life better. So we bless somebody when we do an act of kindness for them, even if they've insulted us. We bless someone when we do an act of service for them, uh, even when they've tried to make evil against us. So if your mean neighbor who you can't get along with regularly happens to have a child, you still go out and make a few meals for them, deliver them to the door and say, hey, congratulations on having your new son or your new daughter. Here's a few meals to help you through the next few days. I know what this is like even though they cursed you out the week before because your dog pooped on your lawn and you didn't do anything fast enough about it. <laughs> As an example, hypothetically, I don't have a dog, so there you go. But you get the idea. But what's interesting about all this is the reason behind why Peter even asks followers of Christ to do this in the first place. See, he provides a great incentive for us for actually blessing others. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So if you bless others and don't retaliate, you will inherit a blessing. You will inherit one. He says, For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, And he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. 
You notice the promise of the blessing we obtain if we go God's way in verses 8 and 9? It's the promise in verse 10 of a good life. The, inherit, the blessing we'll inherit is one of a good life. Now to further cement this, Peter quotes King David in Psalm 34, who centuries earlier also recognized that it took these qualities to receive a blessing in his life. I mean, notice the parallels. Peter says, I want you to be more harmonious, right? Be one to like, seek for peace. Look what David thought in 11, verse 11. That a man must, who has, wants to see good days, he must seek peace and pursue it. Peter said in verse 9, don't be one to trade insult for insult. Sorry. Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, in verse 9. But also, David in verse 9 said the exact same thing. He said, uh, one who desires to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And Peter says in verse 9, not to return evil for evil. And what does David say in verse 11? He must turn away from evil and do good. You see the parallels? I mean, Peter's point was that there was great incentive to living in accordance with God's way because it, just like in New Testament days and Old Testament days, it always produced blessing. It always produced blessing and it always resulted in a good and fulfilling life. It always resulted in a good and fulfilling life. Now let me clarify something here. What God is promising in terms of a living a good life and a, free, and a life full of blessing is not free from external hardship. He's not promising a life full of, uh, full of no tests. I mean, the church he was writing to was being severely tested and facing hostility in all sorts of ways. And God always uses trials and testing to shape our character. We know that from Scripture. This is a promise of a good life as much as it depends on you and how you relate to God in His ways. This is an internal decision on your part. These are blessings that come from internal decisions based on the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life and your knowledge of Scripture to obey God's instruction. If you, be, if you go God's way with life, it will produce blessing. If you don't go God's way, it will not. And those of you who have gone God's way in certain areas of life know exactly what I'm talking about. Think of the fruit of your life, fruit in your life, and the blessing and, and how good your days are when you get along with your kids really well because you've gone God's way with parenting. What are days like when you refuse to honor God with the way you parent? Life is not fun at home. Especially if it's patternistic and habitual. You go God's way with family, it will go well. You have fun days, you enjoy your children. How about money? When you go God's way with finances, man, it goes well for you. You have good days. Not always free of trial and tests, but you know a general statement, you can put your head down at night and go to sleep in peace. When you don't go God's way with money, you stress like crazy and you eat the fruit of your own way. Marriage. <laughs> when you go God's way in your marriage and the man honors his role. He lives with his wife in an understanding way and seeks to honor her and is self-sacrificial. Life will go well. When a woman chooses to keep her mouth closed in multiple scenarios and respect her husband by not speaking out in angry words and insulting words, life will go well in the marriage. When we choose to control our temper, not to get angry, when we refuse to gossip, it doesn't go poorly for us, it goes well for us. When we choose to forgive instead of holding on to bitterness, life goes well for us. 
When we choose to overlook wrongs, life does, goes well for us, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's when we don't that life takes a turn for the worse. And it's the reason why many of us get stuck in habitual ruts in our faith that never seem to go away. <laughs> you ever say, why me? Why me? Because you, we haven't embraced the, 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 the truth of God's word and lived it out in our lives the way we, He desires us to. And unfortunately, when Christians go in these patterns, and goodness knows I've been in them, I can, I can give you many examples from my own life. When Christians go in these patterns, God will allow us to face the music we choose to play. And in the Bible, it's called eating the fruit of your own way. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 is very interesting. Actually, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 8. I learned a new scripture this week that I didn't know existed before. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. Interesting, based on today's passage. To rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their face bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. God didn't do it. They did it to themselves, and so God's responding. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he, what he deserves will be done to him. There's a direct correlation. The righteous eat the fruit of their own way, peace with God, and a, and a wonderful life. The wicked do not. Turn with me now to Proverbs chapter 1. As a church. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20. Wisdom here is personified. Wisdom is described as a female, and wisdom here is, is shouting in the streets and is basically standing in the middle of a square of a city. Right? So you can imagine like downtown Calgary and the whole city is assembled and someone's got a megaphone yelling to the whole downtown core. This is what wisdom is doing uh, here, standing in the streets and shouting at the top of her lungs. And she's asking people to come to, to basically, wisdom is personified as a woman, but it's actually God's instruction. So wisdom, the God's instruction is shouting to people to listen and to pay attention. Right? And they don't. They don't. And so look at verse 24, what happens. Because I called you and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I'll mock you when your dread comes, when, you, when your dread comes like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof, so they shall eat the fruit of their own way. Look what happens, though, when, the right, when a person decides to take God's wisdom. Look what happens at the blessings that come when you go God's way. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. 
My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you and make your ear attentive to wisdom, then look what happens beginning in verse um, 7. He says, Then he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. He guards the path of justice and he preserves the way of the godly ones. I circled these four words in the study a few years ago. Listen to what God does. He stores up, he's a shield, he guards, and he preserves. When you go God's way in life, he stores up wisdom for you. He says, look at look at his, his, his activity in your life. He's storing things up, he's shielding you, he's guarding you, he's preserving you. Because when you're walking in his way, he's, he's got your back. <laughs> he's got your back. When you don't walk in his way, he still loves you, but he's gonna let you eat the fruit so that you understand he wants you to return to him. He wants you to come back to him. So that's why he allows you to do that. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Don't get, that, don't get too scared that I'm coming across too hard that way. You're still a believer, but what he's saying is this. I want you to go my way, but I'm going to let you choose how to respond to me. This is a relationship. I'm not a dictator. I present the truth, but you have to trust me and love me to go my way. And here's the thing. I want to encourage you to embrace his way. He promises you a good life. Those of you who have embraced His ways in certain areas of life already know the fruit that you've eaten and how good it's been. And His commandments are not designed to hurt you. They're there to protect you because He loves you. And there's actually two... We'll go back to 1 Peter to finish in conclusion here. There's actually two promises directly within the text. Two blessings right within the text if you go His way. And it's found in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord will be against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord are towards righteous and his ears. His eyes and his ears are open to you when you go his way. Now the phrase, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, doesn't just imply that God only sees what believers are doing. I mean, that wouldn't be any greater privilege than non-Christians experience. The eyes of the Lord is really a common Old Testament phrase that relates to God's special, caring watchfulness over His people. Peter is saying here that God is looking out for you and for your good, and He's looking to meet you at your needs, which should bring you great comfort when you go His way. But not only are His eyes looking towards you to watch out for you, His ears are open to you as well. And what a blessing this is to know that when God that God has this open communication channel between us in prayer because of our willingness to go His way in life. It's a beautiful picture of the relationship, the relational benefits that we have with the Lord when we trust Him at His Word and walk in His truth. So, what can we learn from this passage? I'm going to suggest three lessons. I was actually only going to do one lesson. But uh, the final one is the main point. But here's two, two more. Lesson number one. As believers, not only are we to be not, sorry, not only are we not to be retaliatory in response to injustice, we are to give a blessing. We're not to return evil for evil, insult for insult, but give a blessing. So it's not just a case of not being retaliatory. We, we, God wants us to go the extra step. Pray for them. Speak well of them. And give thanks for them. Who emulated that for us? 
4, you have been called for this very purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Second lesson. What's it mean to give someone a blessing then? To give someone a blessing, one must seek to do good to another through either words or action. If you want to truly bless someone, speak well of them and do something kind for them. That's what it is to bless someone. So, where did I fall short in my Ontario example? I didn't retaliate, but I've never prayed for that guy. I've never given thanks to that guy. And uh, I've never spoken well of that guy. <laughs> So I learned something this week in my own studies as well, just so you know. So if I'm a God-honoring man, I'll be praying for that guy's salvation tonight when I get home. Oh, please, Lord, make me forget. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Isn't that the fleshly battle that goes on, though, in our minds? Be honest. I'm a human being like you. That's, we all have the exact same emotions. It's a choice. It's literally a choice. Do we love the Lord more or do we love ourselves and our ways more? It really comes down to that simple question. Finally, lesson three, it should say lesson three. There's a direct correlation between righteous living and God's present blessing in this lifetime. There's a direct correlation between righteous living and God's present blessing in this lifetime. These blessings that he's promising here aren't for heaven. Everything David talks about and Peter talks about, they're not saying, if you do this, all those blessings will come in glory. Verse 10, the one who desires life to love and see good days now has to do these things. It's, it's, a, present, it's a present reality. Isaiah chapter 3, a present reality for Israel. Proverbs 1, a present reality for us now. That's, a great, that's great. God wants to actually bless your life. I sound like I'm Joel Osteen now, but God has, you know, he, he wants to bless your life, right? But look how He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you in these different ways. Not through nice homes and material possessions. He wants to help you in your relationships and to, and to live life the way He's designed and eat the fruit of that in a positive way. From your family, to your money, to your, to your relationships, to your marriage, every category of your life He wants to pervasively affect. Yeah, I could say more, but I think I'll leave it at that. Why don't we just take one or two minutes before we go into dialogue. Spend time with the Lord right now. And if you're like me, I didn't get through this passage easily this week. It was very difficult for me because God revealed some things in my own family, in my own life that I had to deal with, and I did. Uh, why don't you take some time to just speak to the Lord about some areas that you know that you've walked away from Him from. And that you, that maybe the Spirit has convicted you of in today's message. Maybe it's the way you're harmonious with people, sympathetic, your love for the brothers and sisters in the church, your kind-heartedness, your, hum your humility, your, your retaliatory nature, I whatever it is. And just uh, spend time with the Lord right now. <laughs>